1: Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show.
2: Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Before we begin, I just want to say thank you for your generous response to yesterday's radiothon for Holt International. We were able to not only meet but exceed our established goal the goal that was presented to us and so more children than we had hoped for will have the opportunity to attend school and will be moved away from spending their days on the uh, the garbage heap uh, that has given them their livelihood and extended their lives so thank you so much for your generosity really appreciate it today on the program we're going to talk with Michael Anthony he's the author of a call for courage living with power truth and love in an age of intolerance and fear And I appreciate that he focuses the believer's attention to things that matter and have eternal value uh, and uh, tells us how we can uh, arrive at courage when we need it. I think all of us want to uh, respond with courage in the face of of the challenges of the day. But how do we uh, how do we get that? So we're going to talk with Michael Anthony. The name may sound familiar to you because he served in this community for about a decade, if I recall was involved in prayer summits and so on. Uh, anyway, he's now a best-selling author, and we're going to talk with him about uh, his latest book. I didn't mention it, but James Blind is engineering and producing today's program. Well, some of the developing stories from both yesterday and today, a possible second round of tax cuts was on the table on Tuesday as the president met with House Republicans and fired FBI Director James Comey, urged Americans to vote for Democrats in the upcoming midterm elections. Representative uh, Martha Roby, a one-time critic of Trump, won Alabama's GOP primary runoff election on Tuesday, holding off the challenge of former Democrat Bobby Bright, who had become a Republican and a Trump supporter. It's Sort of convoluted. And tax cuts 2.0. President Trump met with Republican members of the House Ways and Means Committee on Tuesday to discuss a possible second phase of tax cuts. The president said late last month during an interview with Fox Business Maria Bartiromo that the administration would be doing the new tax package this fall in October or possibly sooner. We'll find out more about that. And President Trump was briefed before his inauguration about Vladimir Putin's role, his specific personal hand in Russia's meddling in the 2016 elections, according to a report. House Intelligence Committee Chairman Devin Nunez cast doubt on the timing of the Justice Department's indictment of 12 Russian agents, suggesting that the FBI and Department of Justice want Democrats to regain control of the Congress. And Facebook is responding to concerns about the spread of fake news, reportedly uh, beginning to remove posts that it believes could incite violence. They will be the arbiter of what's legitimate and what's uh, not. Well, former FBI Director James Comey on Tuesday said, History has its eyes on us and encouraged Americans to vote for Democrats in the upcoming midterm elections. Comey, who was fired by President Trump in May of uh, of 2017, issued a tweet urging Americans to snub Republicans this November. This Republican Congress has proven incapable of fulfilling the founder's design that ambition must counteract ambition, tweeted the former FBI Director, a longtime supporter of Republicans. All who believe in this country's value must vote for Democrats this fall. History has its eyes on us. There was a response. Democrats, uh, Democrats rather said, no, thank you. We would rather not have your support. Well, voters in Alabama backed rather four term Republican incumbent Representative Martha Robbie on Tuesday in a closely watched primary runoff less than two years after she uh, alienated some constituents by distancing herself from the president amid the Access Hollywood scandal. And though Trump and Vice President Pence endorsed Robbie in the uh, race over the Democrat uh, turned Republican rival Bobby uh, Bright. Roby's decision to withdraw her endorsement of Trump just before the 2016 presidential election loomed large on Tuesday with voters in the deep red state. Still, she prevailed rather in the second congressional district over Bright, a former mayor of Montgomery owing largely to her support for Trump's agenda and her rival's inconsistent political affiliation. Bright had supported Nancy Pelosi when he served as Democrat uh, representing the district in Congress. And yesterday, in 2013, once the very symbol of American industrial might, Detroit became the biggest U.S. city to file for bankruptcy. And again, yesterday, on this day in A.D. 64, the great fires of Rome began, consuming most of the city for about a week. Some would blame the fire on Emperor Nero, who in turn blamed Christians. And you know what the fallout from that was like. Well, the Trump-Putin saga continues. Two weeks before his inauguration, President Trump was shown evidence that Russian President Vladimir Putin had directly ordered cyber attacks to disrupt the 2016 elections, according to the New York Times. The intelligence was backed up by emails and texts from Russian military officers and a top secret uh, source close to Putin who told the CIA how the Kremlin decided to start its hacking and disinformation efforts against U.S. targets, the Time reported. Uh, Trump was uh, grudgingly convinced by the assessment, according to the Times. Well, Trump says he holds Putin personally responsible for the Kremlin's attempts to meddle in the 2016 presidential election. He told CBS News that he holds Putin accountable because he's in charge of the country, just like I consider myself to be responsible for things that happen in this country. Well, Trump's CBS interview was his latest attempt to deflect backlash over his summit with Putin. It has been a whirlwind week, fueled by the president's contradictory statements about whether he agrees with the conclusion of the U.S. Intelligence Community that Russia interfered with the election. Well, on Monday, in a joint news conference with Putin following their summit, he appeared to undermine the intel community's findings. Then on Tuesday, said he misspoke and insisted he supported the FBI's conclusions. On Wednesday, the confusion continued when Trump appeared to answer no when asked whether Russia was still targeting the United States. But White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders said the president actually was saying no to the prospect of answering more questions, not responding to the specific question. The back and forth continues. Well, the timing of the Justice Department's indictment of the 12 Russian intelligence agents last week was very hard to believe. According to House Intelligence Committee Chairman Devin Nunes, uh, speaking on Hannity on Wednesday, a federal grand jury on Friday indicted the agents for allegedly hacking emails from the Hillary Clinton campaign and Democratic Party during the 2016 election, just days before Trump's one-on-one meeting with the uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin in Helsinki. Well, the indictment also dropped shortly after House Republicans publicly questioned FBI agent uh, Peter Stroke for the uh, rather struck for the first time and held a private meeting with former FBI lawyer Lisa Page. Why does this always happen? Nunez, a Republican out of California, asked every time something happens to one side where we find out a new revelation about what appears to be real problems in the FBI and DOJ with this investigation. All of a sudden they drop an indictment. Asked by Sean Hannity whether the FBI or DOJ were stonewalling congressional investigators in the hopes that Democrats would take control of the House in November, Nunez suggested that might be a possibility. It's the oldest trick in the book, he said. Well, Facebook says it will start removing posts on its sites that it views could spark violence. The move is a response to criticism that the spread of rumors and false stories on its platform has led to people suffering physical harm in countries around the world. Dow Jones reported Facebook's approach to misinformation has been focused on suppressing the popularly the popularity of such content on the platform without entirely scrubbing the problematic Uh, Content. The social networking company has faced questions about being a source for false information that can inflame societal tensions. And on this day in 1993, President Bill Clinton announced a policy allowing homosexuals to serve in the military under a compromise dubbed Don't Ask, Don't Tell, Don't Pursue. And on this day in 1980, the Moscow Summer Olympics began, minus dozens of nations boycotting the games because of Soviet military intervention in Afghanistan. Quite different from Russia hosting the World Cup, given its invasion in, uh, cri- in the Crimea. 1969, on this day, Apollo 11 and its astronauts, I should also mention Ukraine, Neil Armstrong, Edwin Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins go into orbit around the moon, again in 1969. Well, later in the program today, we're going to talk with Michael Anthony. He is the author of A Call for Courage, Living with Power, Truth, and Love in an Age of Intolerance. So stick around for that. When we return, we'll continue to wind our way through some of the news that developed over the last two days. We'll be back.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: We're back 21 minutes after uh, four o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. So much has happened over the last couple of days. It's difficult to keep up. At one moment, this was the case. and the next moment, it might have altered rather dramatically. Mark Thiessen writing um, about the back and forth over the United States relationship with Russia, uh, the president's relationship with Vladimir Putin and what we're to make of it all. If this was an act of treason on the part of the president, Um, Or something short of that, I appreciated appreciated rather what Mark Thiessen offered by way of a little bit of context. He writes, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing again and again and expecting to get a different result, which is one of the many reasons President Trump's news conference with Russian President Vladimir Putin seems so insane. Trump is trying to do something that both of his immediate predecessors tried to do, turn over a new leaf with Russia. They both failed and so will he. Now, again, context is important. What happened in previous administrations, and was this a dramatic departure? Recall that George W. Bush entered the White House promising to end the dead uh, ideological rivalry of the Cold War. At a 2001 summit with Putin in Slovenia, Bush declared, I looked the man in the eye. I found him very straightforward and trustworthy. I was able to get a sense of his soul. Well, maybe not so much. And then President Barack Obama tried to appease Putin by giving in to the Russian leaders' demands that we cancel our missile defense plan with Poland and the Czech Republic and did it on the 70th anniversary of the Soviet invasion of Poland. And while serving as Obama's Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton humiliated herself when she gave Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov a giant red button with the word reset on it, which, adding insult to injury, misspelled the Russian word for reset to read overload. It's now Trump's turn to... Uh, learn the hard way that Russia is an adversary, not a competitor. His summit with Putin was a moment that called for presidential strength. It came on the heels of an indictment of 12 Russian intelligence agents for intervening in the 2016 elege- election rather, and of Russia's brazen use of banned chemical weapons on British soil, which resulted last week in the death of a British citizen. But instead of condemning those actions, Trump refused to acknowledge or denounce the fact of Russian's election interference, and he publicly sided with uh, Putin over his own intelligence community i'm not sure that's entirely right he didn't um, he didn't rise to the defense of the u s intelligence community but i 'm not sure he um, publicly sided with Putin. I think there's a, a bit of a blur there, but nonetheless fell short. It was a position he wisely retracted on Tuesday, declaring what he should have said standing next to Putin. I accept our intelligence community's conclusions that Russia's meddling in the 2016 election took place. Trump does not seem to fathom that the problem with U.S.-Russian relationship is not a lack of effort on the part of U.S. presidents. Russia is the only country on Earth other than North Korea that would dare use a toxic nerve agent to attempt to carry out assassinations on foreign soil. It's a regime that blatantly violates its nuclear and chemical weapons treaty obligations, has invaded two of its neighbors, and has uh, threatened NATO countries and even Mar-a-Lago with nuclear annihilation. Yet, as cringeworthy as Trump's news conference was, unlike Obama, he didn't throw U.S. allies under the bus to appease Putin or take any of the actions many feared, such as lifting sanctions or recognizing Putin's annexation of uh, Crimea. Unlike his rhetoric, Trump's Russia policy has actually been a dramatic improvement over that of his predecessor. Trump expelled 60 Russian diplomats, approved $47 million arms sale to Ukraine, continued the deployment of NATO forces to the Baltic states, posted troops to Poland's border with Russia, and levied new sanctions against Moscow for violating the Intermediate-Range Nuclear Forces Treaty. During his first year in office, he got NATO allies to increase their defense spending by $12 billion and twice bombed Putin ally Syria President Syrian President Bashar al-Assad for his regime's use of chemical weapons. If Putin was looking for a more pro-Moscow policies from the United States, his election interference backfired in a big way. Critics say words matter and they are right. But if words matter, then Trump's critics should be careful what they say. In many cases, their responses to Trump's news conference have matched the president's in absurdity. John Brennan, the CIA director under Obama, tweeted that Donald Trump's press conference performance in Helsinki rises to and exceeds the threshold of high crimes and misdemeanors. It was nothing short of a uh, short of treasonous. Well, the Senate Majority Leader Charles Schumer declared a single ominous question now hangs over the White House. What could possibly cause President Trump to put the interests of Russia over those of the United States? As always, Trump critics bail him out by overplaying their hand. A news conference, however, humiliating is not an impeachable offense, although that is an issue that is um, making headlines, trying to capitalize on the collective outrage that might be limited primarily to the Washington uh, beltway, but nonetheless. A news conference, however, humiliating is not an impeachable offense. And conspiracy theories aside, there is a simple explanation for Trump's performance in Helsinki. He is deeply wrong on Russia. He thinks he can charm Putin into behaving like a normal leader. He'll learn that Putin is KGB to his core, just as those before him learned. When should we be worried? When Trump's actions match his rhetoric. Until then, Trump's summit was simply an embarrassment, not... A disaster. Again, I appreciate some perspective there. And then um, uh, Newt Gingrich points out the truth about Trump, Putin, and Obama. He writes. President Trump reminded everyone of the Obama administration's failure in dealing with Russian meddling in the election. President Trump noted that President Obama and his advisers had information that the Russians had been working to interfere in the election, and they ignored it because they thought Hillary Clinton was going to win. President Trump said President Obama, along with the then CIA director John Brennan and then director of national intelligence James Clapper and the whole group, uh, that you see on television now, probably getting paid a lot of money by uh, your networks. They knew about Russian attempts to interfere in the election in September, and they totally buried it. As, and as I said, they buried it because they thought that Hillary was going to win. It turned out it didn't happen that way. And in fact, one of the books that uh, Isakov and I can't remember who the other author is, uh, these were operatives in the Obama administration, Uh, wrote in a recent book that the president told them when upon learning of this intrusion that they were that the um, the agency responsible for these kinds of cyber attacks, they were ordered to stand down, as uh, as he put it. Anyway, by contrast, he goes on to say, my administration, this is quoting the president, has taken a very firm stance. It is very, uh, a very firm stance, a strong action. We're going to take strong action to secure our election systems and the process. There are two key facts in this statement, Newt Gingrich points out. First, and I'm not endorsing Newt Gingrich, I just think this is a wise assessment. He writes, the very people who have been loudest in attacking President Trump about his performance at the Helsinki Summit are the people who failed to protect America from Russian meddling in 2016. The very intensity and nastiness of former CIA Director Brennan and former Director of National Intelligence Clapper in an attempt to distract attention from their failure to protect America. It was their duty in 2016, not candidate Trump's. Second, the Trump administration has been far tougher on Russia than President Obama ever dreamed of being. The Trump administration is taking real actions designed to weaken Russia and force Putin to change his aggressive behavior. The Trump administration has levied tough sanctions on Russia. Also President Trump's public lecture about Germany not buying natural gas from Russia was aimed at cutting Putin off by, from a hard currency worth tens of billions of dollars and further weakening the Russian economy. Further, the president's efforts to get our European allies to increase their defense spending uh, has a direct impact on uh, Putin. The stronger NATO is, the less maneuvering room Russia has. Beyond pressuring our allies, consider these specific steps. Where President Obama refused to provide serious weapons to the Ukrainians uh, to help them defend themselves, his response was weakness on a pathetic scale. President Trump has approved this, the sale of offensive weapons to enable the Ukrainians to increase the cost to, of Russian aggression. And when the Russians used chemical weapons in Great Britain, President Trump joined our allies and expelled 60 Russian intelligence officers from the United States. When the Russians retaliated, Trump, uh, the administration closed the Russian consulate in Seattle. President Trump had previously shuttered the Russian consulate in San Francisco and smaller annexes in Washington and New York. More than 100 Russian individuals and companies um, have been sanctioned for a variety of reasons. And despite the hysteria, it is impossible to see Trump administration on anything but firm in its dealing with Russia. Nothing done in Helsinki made life easier uh, for the Putin regime in its continued economic decay and diplomatic isolation due to the sanctions. He goes on from there with a brief word uh, about the strong language um, uh, that's being used in response to the whole thing. Anyway, just some some context. That doesn't mean the president was brilliant and articulate and appropriate in some of the things that he said during that press conference, but in the broader context, and if you consider what the previous administrations, both the Bush and Obama administrations, did or failed to do, it perhaps um, maybe takes a little bit of the steam out of, uh, out of uh, some of the more vitriolic voices 31 minutes after four o'clock when we return we're going to talk with michael anthony he's the author of a call for courage living with power truth and love in an age of intolerance and fear
1: you're listening to the georgine rice show podcast is aired on 93.9 kpdq
2: We are back 34 minutes after four o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, award-winning Bible teacher, pastor, blogger, and radio host Michael Anthony offers Christians a playbook for speaking boldly and confidently in a world that tells them to remain silent and, quite frankly, hidden. So how do we stand strong? Well, many of us have become fearful, apathetic, and detached. And our great need is for a revolution of courage. Well, in his book... A Call for Courage, Uh, it's a handbook on how to live with courageous humility. We're going to talk about what that looks like. No matter who you are or what you're facing, A Call for Courage will help you live with power, truth, and love in an age of intolerance and fear. Well, Michael Anthony is a popular speaker and blogger of uh, CourageMatters.com. He's the founder and president of God Factor, founder of the National Week of Repentance, and lead pastor of Grace Fellowship in York, Pennsylvania. He and his work have been featured in major publications and news outlets such as. The New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, CNN, ABC, CBS News, uh, Townhall.com, BeliefNet, and many, many others. He lives with his family in York, Pennsylvania, but he may be familiar to many of you because he uh, spent some time here in the Pacific Northwest. He worked and served alongside Dr. Joe Aldrich and Terry Dirks with International Renewal Ministries and had the privilege of serving alongside them for several years ministering to pastors in prayer summits and conferences here. Uh, in our community. Thank you so much for joining us today,
3: George, Thank you for having me on the program. It's great to hear your voice again. We don't get to hear you that often here on the East Coast, that's for sure.
2: <laughs> well, thank you. It's it's good to have you back as well. Even though you're not physically here, you're back home, as far as we're concerned. <laughs> this right. Is,
3: right.
2: This is such an important book because uh, this is a season in which courage is called for. But many of us who see it in others. Cannot imagine that we we are capable of it ourselves, and have no idea where to begin to muster up um, what it, mm-hmm. this age calls for. You write about the fact that you spent some time away in in writing this book. What what in you uh, felt the need to help your brothers and sisters in Christ um, to draw on what God has made available to us in this age?
3: Well, Georgine, I think that American Christianity has been hijacked. And it's been undone by an inside job. We unwittingly have divorced courage from humility. And when you think about Jesus, he was the perfect embodiment of both. What I refer to in the book, A Call for Courage, as courageous humility Mm -hmm. or humble courage. And so I I don't know how the religion of love, the religion of humility, has somehow been rebranded as a religion of cowardice, fear, and hatred. And that's that's a very serious, concerning thing. So the book really came out of a lot of soul-searching on my own part, and a lot of analysis of what was happening in the nation. And I just felt compelled to share and to put out a call for action to try to turn things around.
2: Well, let's talk about what fear is and what it isn't. Many of us imagine courage is a loud, brash, sort of overwhelming, domineering, Um, uh, ability Mm -hmm. to to get one's way or at least to have one's message uh, heard. What is courage and what isn't the the kind of courage that you're writing about and the scriptures talk about?
3: Well, I, I think it's important for people to understand that courage is not something that anybody's born with. No one is born with courage. Courage is something that anybody can develop. So people need, people who are listening, Georgie, need to be encouraged by that truth and that's true in my own life anybody uh, courage is not something that you're born with it's something you develop secondly courage is not the absence of fear it's the determination to face your fears and to do what is right in the face of perhaps overwhelming or, or uh, intimidating odds and that's one of the great needs that in our nation we have a crisis of humility and a crisis of courage and biblically speaking whenever you see courage that's consistent in the Bible, you also see humility when God is using somebody. Mm -hmm. And whenever you see humility that's consistent in the Bible, you also see courage. Those two might seem to be like a paradox at first, you know, antithetical, opposite, courage versus humility. But biblically, you always see when God is using somebody, you see humility and courage traveling together. So those things can be developed if somebody is, is really interested in developing their courage.
2: Well, and I I think it's important also to put the notion of courage in the context of one's Christian faith. The goal isn't uh, for me to win and for someone else to lose. It really has to do with a biblical approach um, to Mm -hmm. confronting or approaching a, a conflict. You write that we need a second reformation, a new great awakening where the application of biblical truth in light of local, national, and world events transforms every aspect of our lives. To what degree do we yes. owe our absence of courage to our lack of knowledge of God's word, our unwillingness to spend time uh, studying and applying God's word?
3: Well, that's a great question, and I want to answer it as a pastor and uh, somebody who spent a lot of time in ministry overseas in twenty-some countries. I think that we today in the United States we confuse Bible knowledge for Bible application, and we confuse church growth with discipleship. Hmm. Unfortunately, much of what we do in ministry is is done according to speed, size, and numbers. And we even have magazines that publish the fastest growing this, the largest that. And we are seduced by our own attraction, our own sinful nature, which is irony of ironies. We're seduced by the very things and, and impressed by the very things that don't impress Jesus. Man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. So I think it's really important to go back to an understanding when you read the New Testament epistles when you read the New Testament the overwhelming majority of them Georgine are written to address specific theological, social, political issues that the recipients were facing. The book of Philippians is different than Galatians is different than Ephesians is different than 1st and 2nd Timothy. Each one has a specific audience with a set of needs. But today, much of the preaching that we're seeing, and even the books that are being written that are popular, they, they preach the gospel in a vacuum, devoid of what actually is happening around us before our very eyes. And so the Bible has become, in many places, in many cases, a book of, about success, personal success for yourself, apart from the agenda of God that's laid out in the Scripture. So when I say we need a second Reformation, it's a, it's going back to rediscovering that the purpose of all Bible study and Bible knowledge and all preaching and teaching is not to simply inform, it's to transform. If we're not applying the Bible, if the Bible's not reading us while we're reading the Bible, then we're not really reading the Bible.
2: Yeah, yeah. You also make the point that the price of real revival, which is something many of us are praying for is paid through mm-hmm. real repentance it begins with us we want to see a change in the world mm-hmm. but sometimes we're looking outward and god is looking at our hearts mm-hmm. and saying it needs to begin with repentance
3: mm-hmm. yeah absolutely second chronicles seven i'm sure many people listening or have that that verse committed to memory if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves seek my face pray turn from their wicked ways then i'll hear from heaven forgive their sin heal their land and. Many times we quote that verse and we launch right into the need for intercession for what's happening in the nation. And intercession is a great thing. There are plenty of Bible passages on intercession. But second Chronicles seven fourteen is not a call for intercession. It's a call for repentance and the epicenter is God's people, not the world. Now granted the US is not a theocracy, you know, the rule and reign of God mm-hmm. through people. There's not a one to one correlation between Second Chronicles seven fourteen and any other group apart from the Jewish people. But there is a biblical principle there where humility and brokenness and confession of sin and repentance are attractive to God. That's one of the main teachings of the Bible. So if we want repentance, you know, the price of the price of real revival is paid through repentance. It begins with a self examination and honest to God, look at ourselves where we say, God, change me, and then in that overflow, change the world. So it's a fundamental change, Georgine, that needs to happen within the body of Christ. I think too often we we take a step back and we're looking at the the national situation as if we're not part of it, but we are part of it. And whenever God wants to bring about real change, he begins in God's house, whether or not it happens in the White House. Real change begins with God's house among God's people.
2: We're talking about the book, A Call for Courage, Living with Power, Truth and Love in an Age of Intolerance and Fear. My guest is Michael Anthony. He's the host of the God Factor radio broadcast. Now, the book is designed to uh, to not just be uh, educational, but to be practical. And at the end of the chapters, you mm-hmm. offer a section that's titled In a Nutshell, where you uh, encourage your your reader to go deeper and perhaps to apply what they have read Uh, Explain to our listeners how this is structured and how you see the book best benefiting those who are looking for the kind of um, uh, courageous humility that you write about. Mm
3: -hmm. Well, I think uh, courage is the need of the day. People know that something needs to change beginning in themselves. They don't know where to begin. I did not want to write a book. I wrote the first draft hold up in a Pennsylvania cabin, and uh, my keyboard was basically smoking. (laughs) <laughs> as I was writing it out, but I was compelled not to simply write a book of information. I, I did not simply want to communicate to the list to the reader uh, or to the listener because it's also an audio book. Um, Thomas Nelson gave me the privilege of going down to Nashville and reading for it, so those who like to listen can listen to it as well. I didn't want to simply provide information in light of our. Information overdose that we have today. I wanted to write a book that would help a housewife, help a homeschooler, a public schooler, a businessman, a CEO, a young person, an old person, black, yellow, white, red, rich, poor. I wanted to. I approached it as if I was sitting down in a coffee shop, and we've got some great coffee shops in the Northwest. We miss them <laughs> out here in the Northeast. As if we were sitting down having a, a, a great time together conversing with the purpose of, I want God to change me. Mm-hmm. I want God to use me. I want to get really serious about this Jesus thing that we tend to have forgotten. So that was the whole bent when I wrote the book. I kept asking, I had written out a piece of paper, is that so? So what? What's this going to mean for the average person? How can I breathe hope and encouragement to them so that they walk away and they say, I, know, I now know what to do not just how to think.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, you certainly succeeded at that goal. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation again. We're talking about the book, A Call for Courage, Living with Power, Truth and Love in an Age of Intolerance and Fear. Michael Anthony is my guest, and we'll both be back in just a moment.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, we are back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're continuing our conversation with Michael Anthony, host of the God Factor radio broadcast. He's also a popular speaker and blogger at CourageMatters.com, founder and president of God Factor, founder of the National Week of Repentance, and lead pastor of Grace Fellowship in York, Pennsylvania. His latest book is simply titled A Call for Courage, Living with Power, Truth, and Love in an age of intolerance and fear. It's been interesting to watch the shifts in our culture just in recent uh, months, uh, and I think a lot of believers are concerned about where do I fit into this and where do I, uh, how do I find the courage to uh, confront the culture in a way that's honoring to Christ. One of the things that you write about is the secret weapon that God has given each of us uh, for courage, we imagine that some people have it, others of us don't, and yet there is something, some resource available to us that's God-given that we can uh, call upon when the need arises. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that.
3: Courage is, no, it, yeah, you know, it's not something that we're born with. Nobody knows how to walk when they're first born, or even when they're when they're young. You need somebody who comes alongside of you and believes in you and coaches you and, and walks you along the path that you need to go on. Most of the lessons I've learned in life I've learned from failure. And so a call for courage is also, you know, if people like stories, if, if they like brutal honesty, I'm very honest with some of the struggles that I've gone through in life to try to breathe hope in other people, Georgine. So that's what I wanted the book to be. I wanted to be. I wanted it to be a journey where the reader comes along with me or the listener comes along with me. We travel together and we encourage each other take my hand, I'll take your hand, let's walk together and come out better for it As at, at the end of the tunnel. So that's that's the, the, the purity of how I approach the book, and I hope that it achieved that end so that people are encouraged to cultivate their courage. That's the purpose of it.
2: One of the things that began many, many years ago, it was uh, deliberate, it was designed, and that was to label uh, those who are motivated by love, who have experienced the love of Christ, and that uh, is at least supposed to be the defining um, a central theme of their life to be labeled uh, haters or racist or bigoted okay. for disagreement. Um, one of the things that, uh, where courage is needed is in this area where we are labeled in a way that, is, uh, that doesn't really reflect where we are, but we don't quite know how to speak to that kind of situation. You write mm-hmm. about it. Um, what advice can you give uh, those mm-hmm. of us who want to honor Christ and uh, have the kind of courage that's needed.
3: I think one of the things that needs to happen in each of our lives uh, and on a national basis is we need to do more soul-searching about what we stand for, not just what we're against. Oftentimes, I think this has happened more recently in more recent times in our nation, Christians, especially conservative evangelicals, of which I am a conservative evangelical, we're known for what we're against, but not what we're for and so we have been responsible for some of our own rebranding i think it's time for people to really sit down and examine what do i stand for as a follower of jesus what did jesus want his disciples to be known for and with that i want to say this because i know you're in the northwest and we i spent a good you know over a decade Mm -hmm. there love does not mean accepting everybody wherever they are you can disagree with somebody passionately and yet still love them. And isn't that what Jesus did on the cross? Isn't that what Jesus did? He he simultaneously spoke out against sin his whole life and on the cross. And while he simultaneously loved people. To love somebody doesn't mean it's okay, you can do whatever you want, you can think whatever you want. To love somebody means to tell them the truth. Oftentimes the most loving thing you can do for somebody is tell them the truth when you know what it is. And really, the most hateful thing you can do for somebody, Georgie, and it's really important for listeners to grasp, the most hateful thing you can do to somebody, that what makes you a real hater, is when you know what the truth is and you won't speak it. You won't tell people who need to know what it is. So part of the rebranding that we're responsible for, mm-hmm. another part of it is because people don't understand that the most loving thing you can do is tell somebody the truth when you know what it is.
2: And it seems to me that only those who are guided by the Holy Spirit can walk that very uh, sharp knife's edge to to hit the right Mm -hmm. balance that is honoring. We're going to face opposition even when we do things the right way. And I'm not suggesting we Mm -hmm. uh, we always do, but that that's going to be a part of what uh, we can expect. But making sure that in the Mm -hmm. process of doing what God has called us to do, to do it in a way that honors him. That's when you know, okay, I've uh, I'm doing the right thing. And that's a challenge
3: hmm Well, be- beautifully stated. I think you hit the nail right on the head. The whole issue is that today, more than ever, if you're not walking with Jesus, if you're not really abiding in him, you're not going to produce fruit that, that is honoring to him because reverse intolerance is now what we're seeing in our nation. People talk about tolerance all day long, tolerance, tolerance, tolerance. Unless you're a person who believes in the biblical Jesus, believes that the Bible is the inspired word of God, and you believe and you embrace historic Judeo-Christian values, then we don't want to hear from you. So tolerance is really politically correct talk these days for intolerance directed toward people of faith. And so if you're not walking with the Lord today, if you're not in love with Jesus, loving him with all your heart, mind, strength, and soul, you are going to not only be tempted to give in to tolerance, which is really backing off of truth, You're not only going to be tempted, you're going to get into it, and you're going to confuse complacency and apathy and everybody does what's right in their own eyes as being loving when it's not, because biblically, it's not just love, and it's not just truth. We're supposed to do what Ephesians 4 says, we are to speak the truth in love. Both ingredients are necessary in the divine equation. And that's what we need to see in our country right now, in our churches, in our houses, in our personal lives when it comes to following Jesus. Truth plus love equals courage. God calls us to both.
2: One of the things that we, are, um, we wrestle with as believers is whether or not we ought to speak up, and I think we need to be guided by the Spirit, because speaking up is not always the right thing to do at every moment, mm-hmm. but there are times in yes. which we are charged with just that. You have a chapter titled, Did Jesus Judge?, and we're often labeled mm-hmm. with the, the notion that we are not to judge. Um, talk about right. the, the, our uh, biblical understanding of what it means to judge rightly when it's appropriate to do so. Right.
3: Excellent question. We hear that all the time. Jesus didn't judge. And then, what do you say to that? It makes us get tongue-tied, you know? It's like, Whoa. but actually, it's, it's a statement that's repeated, and it doesn't have any truth to it whatsoever. The whole Bible is a book of judgment, from Genesis to Revelation. Going back to Cain in the Garden, God actually says to him, if you do what's right, won't you be accepted? The implication is yes. The whole great commission, going to all the world, preach the gospel in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, baptizing people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. Well, if you don't, if you're not able to know right from wrong, and obedience from disobedience, it, that's all judgment. The difference is being judgmental. We're, we're called not to be judgmental toward each other, but we are called to judge, beginning with ourselves. So. The whole Bible is a book on changing of our motives. We're going to be judged at the judgment seat of Christ, believers. There's a great white throne judgment spoken of at the end of the book of Revelation. Jesus judged his whole life. The cross is a judgment against what? Against sin. We just need to be careful that we're not judgmental. The difference is Mm -hmm. being judgmental is when we look down our noses at people and we think we're better than them. The Pharisees were judgmental. But Jesus definitely judged. Paul the Apostle, if you read the book of Galatians, he judged the Apostle Peter when he was clearly in the wrong. So Jesus did judge. Judgment has to deal with discerning correct and incorrect thoughts, attitudes, and behaviors. And you can't follow Jesus if you're not willing to judge beginning with yourself.
2: Yeah, and that's an important point. Yeah, that that notion of humility and repentance. Now, our time is just about up, but I want to invite you once again to talk about um, the, the notion of uh, courageous humility. These are not two things we mm-hmm. typically put together, but that's what we're called to.
3: Yes. W- courageous humility is what Jesus embodied. You know, he overturned the tables of the money changers. He called the teachers of the law whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones, very strong language. And it's the same Jesus who stooped down and talked to the woman caught in adultery and said, go and sin no more. And by the way, when he said go and sin no more, he was judging. He was telling her, no, your behavior is not okay. You can't continue to do what you've been doing now that you've encountered me. So humble courage is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. When we really are walking with Jesus, when we're really surrendered to him, that's when when courage rises up within us, right? The apostles, when they saw that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they realized that they had been with Jesus when they had seen their courage. We always become like who we spend time with. When we, when we spend time with Jesus by being in his word with a bent toward putting the Bible into action, there's the key, we, we cannot but become more humble and more courageous. They always travel together for the person who's really walking with God. We always become like Jesus when we really walk with him. And Jesus was and is the most humble, courageous being, being God himself, that the world has ever seen and will ever see.
2: Well, the book, once again, is called A Call for Courage, Living with Power, Truth and Love in an Age of Intolerance and Fear. Uh, It's uh, published by Nelson Books, which is an imprint of uh, uh, Thomas Nelson. And I would encourage anyone um, who is interested in reflecting the the character of Christ in a very challenging time to walk that fine line of courageous uh, humility. This is a great book to, uh, to help us do that. Uh, to the glory of God. Thank you so much for talking with us today. It's it's nice to have you back, even if it's only by, by phone.
3: <laughs> well, Georgie, and thanks for the privilege. It's really wonderful you're doing a great work and I uh, miss your program being out here in the Northeast.
2: Hey, thank you so much. God bless. Bye-bye. Yes. Again, uh, Michael Anthony, A Call for Courage, and you can find his uh, blog, which is couragematters.org, if you're interested in more information. We've got news and traffic coming at the top of the hour. When we return, we'll wind our way through many of the stories that accumulated over the last couple of days so we'll be back
1: you're listening to the georgine rice show podcast is aired on 93.9 kpdq
2: welcome back you're listening to the second hour of the georgine rice show james blend is engineering and producing today's program. Well, the deadly wildfire southeast of the Dalles is being investigated as a suspected arson, according to state fire officials. One person, a 64-year-old, has died as a result of that fire. It's called the substation fire at this point. It's uh, burned more than 50,000 acres. It's forced several communities to evacuate. The Wasco County Sheriff's Office said that Ruby's body was found uh, yesterday afternoon near a burned tractor. It appeared that he was trying to create a fire line Uh, He died from exposure uh, to the fire itself. He was protecting a neighbor's property. Well, during a press conference today, uh, this morning, when asked about the cause of the substation fire, Oregon Governor Kate Brown, she told a reporter, Clearly, um, you're hearing there is a likelihood of arson, and our agencies are going to help in that investigation. Now, this is so puzzling to me. How do you tell with a 50,000-acre fire what the cause, the initial cause Was And obviously they have ways of doing that, but that's just a fascinating uh, prospect to me. Uh, One reporter spoke uh, to the Oregon Assistant State Fire Marshal, Mariana Rules Temple, and Doug Graff, who's the Fire Protection Division Chief with the Oregon Department of Forestry, both confirmed that local law enforcement agencies are investigating the fire as suspected arson. Well, Portland Fire and Rescue Lieutenant Damon Simmons said that Um, He could not confirm whether the state agencies were assisting with the investigation into the cause of the fire, said there is no official information on the cause as of yet. But today, air resources uh, were dropping retardant in front of the fire to slow its growth, and helicopters will be making uh, water drops directly onto the fire. Crews on the ground are going to focus on protecting structures and removing grass and shrubs ahead of the fire, and bulldozers will be used to cut fire lines. So the effort uh, continues One can only hope that they uh, don't discover this was deliberately set or rather carelessly set. I wanted to let you know that there is a ban on campfires. Open flames have been banned at all Oregon State Parks. All campfires, open flames are banned in all Oregon State Parks. As of this morning, the ban instituted by the Oregon Parks and Recreation Department is a reaction to the governor's declaring a state emergency because the wildfires burning in the state of Oregon. We understand this is an inconvenience for campers, especially those who might not see the immediate need for local fire restrictions. Uh, the deputy director said in response and the anticipated uh, Uh, grown from the public, Uh, he went on to say, explain rather, that the ban is to help assure firefighter resources remain focused on fighting the fires burning across the state. There are currently 21 wildfires in Oregon. We appreciate the public's patience and their willingness to help protect our natural resources. Well, the ban, which is expected to last one week, applies to all campgrounds, day use areas, and all ocean and beach areas managed by Um, This agency, the ban applies to wood, charcoal and other flame sources uh, that that can't rather be turned off with a valve. Liquid fuel stoves, uh, cooking devices that can be turned off with a valve can still be used but can't be left unattended. So that is at least one of the consequences of the many fires that are currently burning across the state of Oregon. Well, the controversy surrounding the president's border policy has Americans split down the middle over the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency, also known as ICE. The latest Fox News poll found that 41 percent of registered voters approve of how ICE is handling its job, while an identical 41 percent disapprove. That said, uh, by a more than two to one margin, voters are against disbanding the agency. 42 percent oppose, 18 percent uh, are in favor. A large thirty nine percent minority said it doesn't know enough about ICE. And that's probably true of more than thirty nine percent to have an opinion on shuttering the uh, the agency's doors. Voters familiar with the agency are more likely to both approve of the job ICE is doing, 59 percent, and oppose its elimination at 57 percent. About four in 10 voters are extremely or very familiar uh, with the agency. Well, it was um, headline news for a few days, uh, just a few days ago. But Brett Kavanaugh is polling like Robert Bork and Harriet Myers did. But it's uh, probably not his fault. Well, Brett Kavanaugh, President Donald Trump's new nominee to the Supreme Court, has been on the national stage for all of nine days. Uh, And the early reviews, well, they're not that great. Polls show that Kavanaugh is one of the most unpopular Supreme Court nominees in recent history. Now, it used to be a name is mentioned and it 's the uh, the responsibility and the job of the u s Senate to determine whether or not they are qualified. they have sufficient uh, background and experience to uh, carry out the job. Now it has more to do with the ideology and it becomes a political event. So much of what's being heard about Brett Kavanaugh, Kavanaugh rather is not very flattering. The traditional way pollsters test support for a Supreme Court nominee is this. Do you think the Senate should vote to confirm name the name to the Supreme Court in this case Brett Kavanaugh? At least 3 high qualified um, pollsters have asked a version of this question for Kavanaugh already enough to start talking, or rather taking the data seriously and of course this is before you've had uh, the opportunity to hear from him other than the speech, the brief comments made after his announcement. Well, according to the the latest Fox News poll conducted the 9th through the 11th, 38 percent of registered voters said that they would vote to confirm Kavanaugh. Of course, they don't have the um, opportunity to vote. That's the Senate's uh, job as uh, the constitutional role of advice and consent. 32 percent say they would vote against him. That's uh, plus six net confirmation rating. It's the second worst initial score. Compared to uh, the first poll taken also by Fox of each past nominee out of the seven Supreme Court nominees uh, they have polled, everyone from John Roberts through Kavanaugh except Merrick Garland. Only Harriet Myers, whose appointment to the court by George W. Bush was withdrawn, fared worse. Uh, with a plus-five score. Well, according to a Gallup poll taken the uh, 10th through the 15th of this month, 41% of U.S. adults want to see the Senate vote in favor of Kavanaugh, while 37% want him voted down on Gallup's initial read of 10 Supreme Court candidates since Robert Bork. All of them except Stephen Breyer, Anthony Kennedy, and David Souter. Only two came close to having such a low score. Bork, who was the rare nominee to lose a confirmation vote outright, and Myers— Myers had a plus six net confirmation rating. Bork had plus six. Kavanaugh sits at plus four. And according to a Pew Research Center poll conducted the 11th through the 15th of this month, Forty one percent of adults said Kavanaugh should be confirmed compared with 36 percent who said he should not be his uh, plus five net confirmation rating in this lowest of the past eight nominees, beginning with John Roberts, including Myers. Now, you may be sensing a pattern. It's not a huge sample size. But in the last few decades, at least Supreme Court nominees as unpopular as Kavanaugh have never been successfully confirmed. Um, and we'll have to just wait and see what actually happens in the Senate. But as you know, the enemies have been arrayed against him, and it's going to be an uphill uh, uphill battle to confirm uh, him in the U.S. Senate at this time. All right, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're winding our way through some of the news stories we weren't able to cover yesterday, and we'll try to catch up. Uh, we're going to take a quick break, um, and we'll be back in just a few moments.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, we are back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Well, watchdog group Citizens Against Government Waste released its annual congressional pig book, sometimes referred to as the pork book, on Wednesday, shedding light on the federal government's pork barrel spending. Well, every year, Citizens Against Government Waste, or CAGW, releases a pig book. It lists federal government pork projects. The group defines a pork project as a line item in an Appropriations bill that designates tax dollars for a specific purpose in circumvention of established budgetary procedures. In order to meet the criteria to qualify as pork, a project has to meet seven criterion. Well, in uh, 2018, in that pig book, uh, they cited 232 earmarks, uh, marking a 42.3 percent increase from fiscal year 2017. The airmarks in question come to a total of 14.7 billion dollars for fiscal year 2018 over double the $6.8 billion from the year prior. While well, the Citizens Against Government Waste attributes much of the increase to the Bipartisan Budget Act of 2018, where spending was increased in nearly every category in order to get it passed by Congress. This is uh, with the majority in, of Republicans in both the House and the Senate. And while they name the sponsor of different spending measures when it can, it notes that the uh, bipartisan Budget Act made it difficult to identify who was behind many items in the 2018 list. The fiscal year 2018 airmarks were again contained in a consolidated appropriations package, which presents its own challenge regarding how the taxpayers' money is being spent, the Pig Book states. Throwing all the airmarks into one large bill makes it more difficult to identify and eliminate the projects that if Congress adhered to regular order, and consider the spending bills individually would not have been able to succeed. The report also voices concern with the inadequacy of an airmarked moratorium, which was first applied in 2012, a moratorium. While members of Congress may have thought that airmarks would be on the back burner during an election year, the release of the congressional pig book should bring the issue to the forefront once again. It will be much harder, even hypocritical, to argue that spending will be restrained in the next Congress following a 13.4 percent increase in discretionary spending and a 116.2% increase in the cost of earmarks. Unfortunately, the earmark moratorium has not only failed to eliminate earmarks, but also has rendered the process patently less transparent. There are no names, no lists or charts of earmarks, and limited information on where and how the money will be spent. Members of Congress will argue that their standards differ from the earmark criteria used in the pig book and that the appropriations bills are earmark free, according to their definition. However, the difference in the definition of earmarks between the organization that created the pig book and Congress has existed since the first pig book way back in 1991. MGM Resorts International has filed federal lawsuits against more than a thousand Las Vegas mass shooting victims in an effort to avoid liability. Apparently, they are not concerned about the PR cost of it all. The company, which owns Mandalay Bay and the Route 91 Harvest Festival venue, argues that it cannot be held liable for October 1st deaths, injuries and other damages, adding to the uh, that any claims against MGM uh, parties must be dismissed, according to complaints filed Friday in Nevada and in California. Plaintiffs have no liability to, of any kind to defendants the complainants. Uh, argue well, the company cites a two thousand and two federal act that extends liability protection to any company that uses anti terrorism technology or services that can help prevent and respond to mass violence. Well, they may have had the technology, but obviously it did not help in this case, the company argues the security vendor MGM hired and uh, were um, wrote, uh, route ninety one contemporary services Corp was protected. Uh, from liability because its services had been certified by the Department of Homeland Security for protecting against and responding to acts of mass injury and destruction. Well, the lawsuits argue that this protection also extends to MGM since MGM hired the security company. They do not seek money from the victims, but they do ask that a judge decide if the 2002 act is applicable and if so, determine that future civil lawsuits against the company are not viable. Debbie Deschong, a spokeswoman for MGM Resorts, released a statement about the litigation on Monday. According to the statement, the federal court is an appropriate venue for these cases and provides those affected with the opportunity for a timely resolution. Years of drawn out litigation and hearings are not the best interests of victims, the community and those still healing. Well, Las Vegas attorney Robert. Eglitt, uh, who has represented several October 1st victims, said the grounds of the litigation is obscure. MGM is a Nevada company, so any lawsuit belonging uh, in state court, he says, he viewed the decision to file the complaints in federal court as a blatant dis- uh, display of um, judge shopping that, quite frankly, verges on unethical. He went on to say, I've never seen a more outrageous thing where they sue the victims in an effort to find a judge they like. It's just uh, really sad that they would stoop to this level. Now, whether or not that is, in fact, the motivation, it's not altogether clear to most of us. But this is the perspective uh, from one of the attorneys representing some of the victims. Well, the act cited in the new lawsuit was passed just more than a year after the 9-11-2001 attacks and intentionally included broad protections. For instance, the act defines terrorism as any unlawful act inside the United States that causes mass destruction, injury or other loss. Well, the FBI has not called the Las Vegas mass shooting an act of terrorism because the gunman had no clear motive. And the FBI defines terrorism as an act of terror associated with extremist ideologies of a political, religious, social, racial or environmental nature. The gunman opened fire from his Mandalay Bay suite, killing 58 concert goers and injuring hundreds of others. It's not clear what his motivation might have been. If you are a subscriber to The Oregonian, you may have noted just a few days back uh, a piece from the executive director of Oregon Right to Life, Lois Anderson. The Oregonian printed two abortion guest opinions, one from Governor Brown and one from Emily McLean, uh, the new executive director of Planned Parenthood Advocates of Oregon. So um, Lois Anderson contacted the editorial page editor and asked for some equal time. They printed her guest opinion. And uh, um, she sent out an email uh, to those who follow the work of Oregon Right to Life or pro-life issues in general. And I wanted to share with you, if, uh, for those of you who did not have the opportunity to read this opinion piece, primarily because so few subscribe to the newspaper anymore, uh, what she um, posted in that opinion piece. Again, this is Lois Anderson, Executive Director of Oregon Right to Life. Operation Rescue. Oh, this is the picture. Let me move forward. Politicians and their allies learned long ago that fear is a great way to manipulate people. In recent commentaries by abortion proponents, the specter of women losing rights in health care has been thrown around as if women are in imminent danger of being turned away for a flu shot. This is simply not the case. I believe in a greater power than fear. Truth. She goes on as we spend the summer debating the confirmation of a new justice to the Supreme Court. There are some basic truths that should inform our dialogue. In 1973, the Supreme Court of the United States handed down Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton. The combined effect of the two decisions legalized abortion for any reason throughout America until the point of birth. As Oregon Oregon has never passed any law restricting abortion, it remains legal to obtain an abortion throughout all nine months of abortion in this state, even though 70 percent of Oregonians oppose third trimester abortions, according to an Oregon Right to Life poll. Abortion rights supporters have made it clear that they will accept no limits on abortion. In 1983, Senate Bill 397 was passed, overturning our original abortion law, Senate Bill 193, in 1969. That placed restrictions on abortion. Senate Bill 397 also made abortion a state constitutional right in case Roe v. Doe were overturned or significantly altered. With Judge Brett Kavanaugh's nomination, people from both sides of this hotly divided issue believe this is a very real possibility in the not-too-distant future. NARAL and Planned Parenthood speak as if this would be akin to returning to the Dark Ages. That's an interesting train of thought, given that Uh, It may as well have been the dark ages scientifically based on the knowledge we had of fetal development when abortion was legalized compared to today. Given the scientific advances of the last 50 years, I believe it is far past time that Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton Bolton were thoroughly re-examined. In 1973, science was surprisingly undeveloped surrounding fetal development. Fetal age had to be estimated by the size of the uterus, menstrual cycles, and the quickening when a baby can be felt in the womb. And although the ultrasound was invented by this time. It was uh, not widely used in America until the late 1970s. To this day, science is still discovering new things about human development. For example, a recent study showed that the earliest electrical... Contractions of the heart muscles occur less than three weeks after conception. Another significant change since 1973 is our ability to keep premature infants alive. Before 1970, more than 90% of babies under one kilo died, whereas today almost 90% survive, according to Hugo Uh, Lagerkranz, professor of pediatrics at Karolinska University or Institute and former head of the neonatal care at the Astrid Lindgren uh, Children's Hospital in Stockholm. The earliest age that a premature baby has survived in the U.S. is now 21 weeks and five days. That would have been unthinkable in 1973. And of course, that's the year that Roe versus Wade and Doe versus Bolton was decided upon. She continues, even if... Even if it had been more informed, the court in 1973 did not spend time considering what was available to them. They did not consider what the unborn were. Throughout the court's majority opinion, they called the unborn potential human life. Even then, a review of an embryology textbook or the April 30th, 1965 issue of Life Magazine would have illustrated that there is nothing potential about an embryo and a fetus. Each one is fully human and is developing and growing just like every other human does at that age and stage of development. Just as we are re-examining old convictions with the advance of DNA testing, we should re-examine the decisions that led to more than 60 million death sentences since 1973 in this country. The Roe and Doe decisions were an egregious Failing of our government to protect our most vulnerable citizens, rather than be fearful that a new Scotus justice would bring the an end to the uh, bring the end of the world, we should embrace the idea that a new Scotus justice could bring modern science, balance, and truth to the debate. And again, this was uh, submitted and uh, posted, or rather, printed in the Oregonian. Lois Anderson is the executive director of Oregon Right to Life, and uh, I was uh, so proud to see her piece. Uh, published in the Oregonian as a counterweight uh, to two previous uh, articles on the subject of preserving abortion, one by the governor of the state and the other by the uh, head of Planned Parenthood. Meanwhile, I uh, opened my mail and I was quite put out to find that I had received a mailing from the executive vice president of Planned Parenthood. It included a, a bumper sticker, I stand with Planned Parenthood, as well as a membership card, neither of which was solicited, but I suppose When you're desperate to have an impact on the uh, upcoming debate, uh, you'll send these things out to anybody hoping that it just might stick. Well, she writes, dear friend, uh, which uh, is not true from the beginning. Let's be very clear about what the Trump-Pence administration and anti-women's health majorities in Congress and the states are attempting to do. They are trying to dismantle a century's worth of hard-won protections, programs and rights. Clearly, she's speaking only of herself and of mature women. She's not referring to Uh, The girls whose lives end as a result of abortion. She goes on to write, and let's be equally clear that our resistance has been powerful. We prevented them from defunding Planned Parenthood three times. The attempt to extend the right to refuse coverage for birth control to any employer for any conscious uh, reason has been temporarily blocked in court. I expect that will not go in her uh, her favor. And so far, legislation to ban abortion after 20 weeks is stalled in Congress. But the White House, Congress, and state governments continue to do everything imaginable to take health care away from women. If you consider abortion when it is not medically necessary, health care, I suppose you can accept that assessment. For those of us who do not, um, that is a false statement. She points out that 4 million Americans rely on Title X, and more than 40 percent of them depend on Planned Parenthood health centers. And again, health centers, they do provide in a very small percentage of their overall uh, work on the area of health, but they farm out much of that. And of course, their breadwinner is the practice of abortion. I was offended, but then I thought I need to start praying for uh, Dawn Laguens. It's L-A-G-U-E-N-S. She is the executive vice president of Planned Parenthood. There are others who have been involved in Planned Parenthood who are the executive directors of of abortion clinics, and they have uh, come to faith in Christ and walked away from the industry. And just like the Apostle Paul, I believe that it's possible for Don, this executive director, or rather executive vice president, uh, to have that same encounter with Christ that would change uh, everything. So rather than be put out and offended, I've decided, as a woman of faith, I'm going to begin to pray for uh, the executive vice president of Planned Parenthood. Now, I would encourage you, if you are frustrated, put out by, offended by the voices of those with whom you disagree. Um, One of the things we ought to do, I think we certainly need to speak up as our conversation with Michael Anthony earlier in the program would reflect, we need to be men and women of courage who are willing to speak the truth in love. But I think it's also important for us to recognize the power of the gospel Uh, The fact that that God loves even those we disagree with, and we need to begin to pray for them, whether that's Donald Trump. And I know some of you would find it difficult to even choke out the name. He's so offensive to you. But if you're a believer, I would challenge you to pray for Donald Trump and every other political opponent that you might uh, think of. Um, Because there's a much larger story at play here, and we have work that that transcends uh, the political. So... I'm going to set the example I'll be praying for. Don, the executive at Planned Parenthood. All right, we're going to take a break. You're listening to the Georgine Rice show.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: We are back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the California State Supreme Court decided on Wednesday that California will remain intact geographically, at least for now, while it decides whether the voters can consider a proposal to divide the Golden State into three new states. So they have taken it from the ballot. Well, the three-state initiative, Proposition 9, had gathered enough signatures to qualify for the November ballot. Nine days after opponents filed suit, the court issued a a unanimous order removing the measure from the ballot and ordering further legal arguments on whether it should be placed on another ballot in 2020 or struck down altogether. Well, the court said it usually allows ballot measures to go to the voters before considering constitutional challenges. But in this case, the six justices said significant questions regarding the proposition's validity and the potential harm of allowing a public vote before those uh, questions are resolved, outweighs the potential harm in delaying the proposition to a future election. Well, those questions include whether California voters broad authority to enact laws by initiative established in 1911 includes the power to break up the state and in the process abolish its constitution and existing laws to be replaced by lawmaking bodies in three future states. Well, the narrower legal issue is whether Prop 9, drafted as a change in the laws that define California's boundaries, would actually Amount to a revision of the state constitution that cannot be done by initiative, but instead requires approval by two thirds of both houses of the legislature to be placed on the ballot. Well, uh, uh, Carlisle Hall, a lawyer for opponents who sued to take Prop 9 off the ballot, said we believe it's a clear, it is clear rather, that a ballot initiative may not revise the Constitution by making change in the, changes rather, in the basic framework of the government. He went on to say, and there can be no greater change in our framework of government than the total abolition of our existing Constitution. Howard Penn, who's the executive director of the Planning and Conservation League, led to <clears throat> Uh, led plaintiff in the in the lawsuit said Prop nine would have caused chaos in our public services um, uh, including safeguarding our environment all to satisfy the whims of one billionaire. Well one billionaire's signature doesn't put the question on the ballot, so that might be something of an understatement. The billionaire is Bay Area venture capitalist Tim Draper. He drafted Prop 9, qualified it for the ballot, and has represented himself without a lawyer in the court proceedings. He argued that California has become ungovernable. Its taxes are too high. Its schools and public services are in disrepair. It's 39 million-plus residents, far too numerous to be represented democratically by 120 elected legislators. He reacted indignantly to the court's order, saying, apparently the insiders are in cahoots and the establishment doesn't want to find out how many people don't like the way California is being governed. He said in a statement that um, the six justices probably would have lost their jobs under the three-state plan. The whole point of the state's initiative process, he added, was to be set up as a protection from a government that was no, uh, no longer representing its people. Now that protection has been corrupted. Well, Prop 9 proposed creating three new states, Southern California, running from San Diego and Orange County North to Fresno and Madera County. California from Los Angeles along the coast of Monterey and Northern California covering all areas from Santa Cruz north to the Oregon border. If the measure appears on a future ballot and a majority of voters statewide approve it, the state would forward the plan to Congress, which would have uh, the last word. Establishing three states in place of one would also authorize the election of four additional U.S. senators. Uh, California's current 55 electoral votes for president, reliably Democratic and recent decades would be divided among the new states and the uh, contours of the proposed Southern California state suggest that uh, would swing Republican California lawmakers. Meanwhile, would uh, apportion current state funds and facilities among the new states. But of course, as the California Supreme court has indicated, that's not going to happen anytime soon while they deliberate. It has been removed from the November ballot. Most of us watched with great interest uh, efforts to, extract 12 boys uh, and their coach from a cave in which they had wandered during safer times that was later flooded, making it impossible for them to exit. Um, Divers involved in that rescue of the 12 boys and their soccer coach from that flooded cave have revealed extraordinary details of the dangerous operation they were a part of. A team of more than 150 worked together to free the group from um, the cave, a six-mile limestone cave system in an operation that... um, essentially scared even the most seasoned professionals. New details of that rescue were revealed earlier this week right on um, Four Corners, which is an Australian television series, including how it was decided which of the 12 boys would be rescued first. Says one of the divers, it's one of the uh, most difficult and dangerous and risky things I've ever done, not in terms of my own personal safety, but in terms of the people I am responsible for. This was a British cave driver, Jason Mallinson, speaking to reporters. I've never done anything as risky uh, as that, and I don't think I ever will again, but it was the only option we had, and we took it. He said uh, a recover uh, diver tasked with uh, getting the children through some of the most uh, dangerous flooded passageways and water that was so murky there was sometimes no visibility at all was very difficult. The probability of success was about as low as you can get. One U.S. mission commander, Major Charles Hodges, said, I was fully expecting that we would accept casualties. Maybe three, four, possibly five would die, he added. For the dangerous three-hour-long journey, each of the children was sedated to stop them from panicking. The rescue was so dangerous, the Australian government negotiated immunity from Thai authorities for any Australians involved in that sedation of the children in case anything went wrong. One expert diver um, uh, divers, actually, two of them have been um, hailed as Australian heroes for their pivotal roles in rescuing the Thai football team. They were involved in much of the leadership. One in particular was described as the linchpin in the operation, helping to assess the children at different stages of the journey. Well, the journey was broken up into nine sections, and uh, expert british drive, uh, divers rather were responsible for bringing them through the most complicated spots using guidelines to help them navigate the passageways that were uh, where there was no uh, visibility said one of them, we submerged with the kids, and depending on how uh, the line laid we 'd either uh, have them on the right hand or on the left hand side, either holding." Um, uh, their back holding their chest, but very close. He described the process as mentally exhausting, especially on the last day when there was no visibility at all. He says, I have had uh, the lad really close to me because... Uh, if you didn't, you were bashing his head against the rocks, and apparently because you couldn't see them, you would only know where they were once you bashed your head against them. He said, if we bashed him against the rock too hard and it dislodged the mask and flooded his uh, mask, this is where he was getting his air, he was a goner. So that's why we had to be very slow and careful about not banging them against the rocks, which were not visible. Instead, he said he extended his head above the boys so that the head, uh, his head hit the rocks instead. The visibility was that bad, you couldn't see the rock." until you actually hit it. And even then, you didn't see it. You just knew it was there. Earlier divers had rehearsed the rescue in a local pool, practicing the maneuvers with volunteer children and assessing whether the risky operation was feasible, said one of the uh, uh, rescue divers, I was confident of getting myself out. I was confident of not losing control of the line. I was confident of getting the kid out, but I wasn't uh, wasn't 100% confident of getting him out alive. At some points, the children had their scuba gear taken off and were uh, taken in stretchers across some areas of the cave. In other areas, they were uh, carried in harnesses across very steep caverns as walking across these muddy areas would have been dangerous. So uh, just a, a lot more to this effort to extract them from this cave than was ever imagined, but they were able to do so successfully, and that is a real blessing. Well, parents, physicians, and school officials are growing concerned as more teenagers potentially damage their health by jeweling. It's inhaling puffs of nicotine from discrete electronic cartridges resembling flash drives. Well, each jewel pod, and it's spelled J U U L or cartridge, contains the same amount of nicotine as found in a pack of cigarettes. About 200 puffs, according to a recent Today article. Students can blow smoke rings with the nicotine laced vapor. A Pennsylvania school district last month banned flash drives because they A look just like Juul e-cigarettes, which students could puff with a teacher not realizing it. Well, teens consider it safer than smoking, but at least one parent, a physician in Allentown, Pennsylvania, worried about lung damage and addiction after discovering her daughter was Juuling. We think this is a bad idea, Dr. Jenny Levy said. "Uh, My biggest concern is she's sucking in vapor, and we don't know what that does. Well, doctors believe e-cigarettes deliver cancer-causing chemicals into the body disguised by fruit flavors, Uh, Dr. Wendy Sue Swanson, a Seattle pediatrician who writes the Seattle Mama Dog blog, told Today She's Concerned. I I do think this is one of the big threats to teen health right now. Uh, These are a delivery vehicle for nicotine, and we know that nicotine is addictive. The website for Juul Lab, J-U-U-L Lab, notes that the product is intended for customers 21 and older. They're encouraging parents to discuss juuling and its potential health hazards with their teens. You can add that to the list of things to be concerned about. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back to wrap things up.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, we are back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, on July 18th, that was yesterday, people around the world prayed for the release of a Christian girl who's been held by Boko Haram, Leah. Uh, Sharibu. She's been held in captivity for 150 days. Today, that's 151 days, but it's not just Leah who needs prayers. Her family needs them, too. Well, the International Christian Concern is in contact with Leah's family and providing uh, support for them as they... uh, Pray for and grieve the the loss of their daughter, with no indication of how she is or where she is. While well, people around the world committed to pray for Leah Sharibu on the 18th, but that was Wednesday, and that marked the 150th day into her captivity. Her family uh, is in need, rather, of prayer as well. In February, the 15-year-old was kidnapped along with 109 other girls from their school in Nigeria. Five girls died in captivity, and in March, Boko Haram released the remaining girls to their families, except for Leah. The The terrorist group refused to release her because she is a Christian and would not convert to Islam, according to her classmates. Well, a representative with international Christian concern contacted her father uh, by telephone. Um, and he, uh, um, the individual who did so, is the um, Africa regional manager of the organization International Christian Concern. Well, since the, it's Nathan Johnson, I should mention, since the kidnapping, no government official has contacted Leah's family, not one. Mr. Shiribu said, uh, Johnson, uh, the... Uh, director of the International Christian Concern, called that surprising considering promises from the Nigerian government officials to work for her release. Well, he previously uh, said that uh, Leah is likely undergoing heavy conversion attempts, if not torture. Her family has received no word of her condition, Mr. Sharibu said. He also asked for prayers for Leah and the rest of his family, including his uh, uh, her mother and brother. Leah's mother, depressed over her daughter's captivity, is especially in need of prayer, he said. Leah's brother has been transferred to a different school for safety reasons. The ordeal has been really hard on all of them. Well, Boko Haram is still active in that area. He continued, it's dangerous for the sharibus because it's no secret that they are a Christian family in a Sharia law state. It puts a target on their back. Well, news reports have mentioned Leah's family, but there hasn't really been too much uh, help yet, Mr. Johnson says. Now the ICC is in contact with the family. The organization is going to work to give them aid. In addition to prayer, Johnson says, uh, raising awareness about Leah's captivity. And pressuring the Nigerian government is crucial. And please uh, continue to pray for Leah. And in another story of a Christian who is being held because of his faith, after nearly two years in a Turkish prison, um, hopes for release of the American pastor Andrew Brunson have been deferred. A Turkish court ordered 50 year old pastor to remain behind bars until at least his next hearing. October twelfth, On Wednesday, the court heard testimony from members of Brunson's church uh, who made vague, unsubstantiated accusations against Brunson, uh, according to the World Watch Monitor. When the judge asked how Brunson would respond to the testimony of the prosecution's witness, he said, my faith teaches me to forgive, so I forgive those who testified against me. Bill Campbell, a North Carolina pastor whose church belongs to the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, the same denomination as Brunson's church, was among several supporters of the pastor who attended the trial. As usual, there was much spurious testimony against Andrew, Mr. Campbell said after the trial. Andrew's testimony was absolutely powerful. He presented the gospel with confidence and defended himself with boldness. Let me repeat that part. After two years of captivity, we have heard that he is really struggling... The physical, mental, and emotional challenges of being in prison, when given an opportunity, and I believe this is his first, to testify, he presented the gospel with confidence and defended himself with boldness. Notably, the court heard a defense witness for the first time, although the witness Brunson initially requested to testify was not permitted to do so. Many of Brunson's supporters had been. Um, uh, cautiously optimistic about his release. The Turkish president and the U.S. president have been uh, photographed smiling and uh, fist bumping each other at last week's NATO summit. The president has spoken to uh, Erdogan about uh, the pastor and uh, spoke again after this hearing directly to him about the pastor. Senators uh, uh, Janine uh, Sheehan and Lindsey Graham have also met with Erdogan and Ankara, and last week in June, uh, or rather the last week in June, though the focus of the meeting was to discuss u s sanctions on Twitter, Freedom House uh, Nate Shenkin uh, called the turkish court 's decision a cruel political decision, just like his imprisonment, referring to the pastor case study and the absurdity of the uh, present. Turkish Justice System tweeted the author of several books about freedom in Turkey. Brunson is charged with being part of a conspiracy of evangelicals, Mormons, and Jehovah's Witnesses embedded among American service personnel in Turkey who conspired to divide the Turkish state on behalf of the PKK and Gulen movement. It would be a farce if it weren't so serious. Keeping him in prison is a political decision, he continued. Letting him out would have been a simple, cost-free way for the Turkish government to show it was concerned about the relationship with the United States, holding him for at at least three more months is a new low. Well, Brunson's imprisonment has attracted worldwide attention and prompted a massive advocacy campaign, state visits, and hundreds of thousands of petition signatures. A Presbyterian preacher from North Carolina, Pastor Brunson ministered in the Muslim-majority nation, straddling the border of Europe and the Middle East for more than 20 years. Then in October of 2016, shortly after a failed coup in Istanbul and Ankara, Turkey's capital, he was detained during a wave of imprisonments and dismissal purging approximately 150,000 officials, judges, teachers, and military personnel. Held without charges and without bail for months, he was eventually accused of abetting the Gulen movement under the leadership of a Turkish Islamic scholar and cleric in exile in the United States. Er Erdogan has long opposed Gulen and blamed his uh, followers for the overthrow attempt and has uh, attempted to use the U.S. pastor to try to gain access to this um, Uh, Islamic cleric. Brunson, pastor of Izmir Resurrection Church on Turkey's west coast and founder of several other churches in that area, refuted the dubious charge. In a letter from March of this year, he wrote, let it be clear, I am in prison not for anything I have done wrong, but because of who I am, a Christian pastor. I desperately miss my wife and children, he continued, yet I believe this to be true. It is an honor to suffer for Jesus Christ, as many have before me. My deepest thanks for all those around the world who are standing with and praying for me. His wife, uh, Noreen, who was initially detained with her husband, but quickly released has remained in Turkey to support him. But the circumstances of the case and the tight hold of Erdogan uh, have uh, made visits and outside contact very difficult for all, but a few chosen family members, the U S consular staff and Brunson's lawyers. So continue to pray for this, uh, this situation and pastor Andrew, as he, Uh, is into his second year um, or approaching the end of his second year in a Turkish prison, which is uh, no small feat. As I mentioned, the uh, president has called the incarcerated American pastor a hostage and has urged the Turkish Erdogan to act. And he did so again following yesterday's hearing. Well, taking a look at uh, tomorrow's program, it is Friday and we're looking forward to stepping away from the more serious side of the news and we will lighten up and I hope you'll plan to join us. Uh, before we sign off, I did want to just say thank you for your generous um, efforts in our our. A plight to try to provide opportunities for education for children in Mongolia. We not only met the goal that we had uh, been given, but exceeded that goal, which means more children than they had hoped for will have an opportunity to be pulled away from the enormous garbage dump where so many of them live or at least spend their days um, into a school that will provide their needs. And it's uh, it's quite amazing, um, and to consider that this listening audience will have a role in their liberation just wanted to say thank you i also want to say thank you to james blind for engineering today's program and producing and thank you for making the georgine rice show part of your day i hope you'll join us tomorrow when we lighten up have a great night
1: thanks for listening to the georgine rice show podcast if you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests please visit the show at kpdq.com or on facebook follow the show on twitter at grice show And like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ